And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Pick up the paper the other day and read a story about a, a book in Canada that uh, is, in fact, right now sold out. The book is called A Gift for a Muslim Couple, and the book advises that a husband shouldn't beat his wife too hard, but pulling her ears and hitting her head with a hand or a stick is okay for discipline. The 160-page book also offers tips on how to confine a wife to the home and withhold cash if she acts up. It goes on to describe the best way to circumcise a woman and explains which babies a woman should be allowed to breastfeed. Now, at least you think that this is something that was written in the 7th century. No, it's a brand new book out. It's been flying off the shelves of bookstores. Uh, I don't know if it's available here in the United States, but the story broke out of Toronto, Canada, where a couple of uh, books there that catered to the Muslim community had sold out of this book. A gift for Muslim couple. I'm wondering if the wife thinks it's such a gift. But encouraging to know that when she's disciplined, um, so long as the husband doesn't beat her too hard, he can use a stick, pull her ears, and uh, withhold cash and even... uh, Confine her. I guess that kind of means uh, imprisonment if she quote unquote acts up. Wow. Well, you, you think that's a bit over the top. You ought to see the revisionist history in books, not just in Canada, but right here in the United States that you are paying for with your tax dollars in public schools. Brigitte Gabriel joins us. She is an international terrorism analyst, two times New York Times best selling author of a number of great books, and president of actforamerica.org. And Brigitte, as always, great to have you on the program. Oh, thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be back with you. I would suspect the first story that you heard out of Ottawa, Canada, or Toronto, rather, regarding this book on how husbands can discipline their wives and and beat them and things of this sort probably didn't come as a huge surprise to you? Not at all. Not at all. Especially as a woman uh, who was raised in the Middle East. I was raised in Lebanon, surrounded by Islamic countries. So I'm very familiar with the way men treat their wives, their women, their mothers, their daughters, and any female in their family. And they feel it is their right to do so because they are the keepers of the honor of the family. And with that thought in mind, let's make the jump to what's going on with the reality that should be brought home to students who attend public schools here in America as to the history and the teachings of Islam, uh, and not in any sense to try to indoctrinate any more than we would want to indoctrinate them about the teachings of Judaism or Christianity or any other world religion for that matter. I think to fairly characterize the history of any religion, including Christianity, is something that kids ought to fully be exposed to. And yet, as uh, a story that you've uh, uncovered reveals, sadly, some of the revisionist history that's taking place uh, that we are paying for with our tax dollars uh, is anything but not indoctrination. In fact, it really goes down to the core of trying to spread information and an image of Islam that is actually quite contrarian to the truth. 
Uh, exactly, and, and and it's interesting that you led this interview by talking about the book uh, on how to treat women uh, that is flying off the shelves in Canada. And of course, you know, this is North America we're talking about. I mean, this book is not sold in Saudi Arabia. This uh, We're not now trying to see these books in, in North America. Yet what is being taught to children in North America in public schools and here in America where people cannot think this could be happening is actually what they're teaching children in school is that women and men have the same right under Islam and they are equal spiritually and every other way. So while we, through Western eyes and under the influence of Islamic consultants who are trying to mislead American publishers and misinform our children, are teaching our children basically untruth about the reality of how men treat women under Islam, we are buying this lie, this misconception, uh, full a lock, stock, and barrel, and we are teaching it to our children in public schools in the name of a tolerance and understanding uh, uh, all with the spirit of political correctness. Give us some examples. People listening right now are saying, well, wait a minute now. You, you guys are exaggerating a little bit. We know that you Christians tend to have a little bit of an agenda when it comes to uh, talking about Islam. Uh, but there are some examples out there that I think ought to really capture the attention of everyone. Uh, let's begin first and foremost with one that I think goes to an example of what we just talked about in this book, Selling in Toronto and in Ottawa. Uh, the idea that the Quran grants women... Uh, spiritual and social equality with men. Exactly, which is not true, and they talk about uh, that in the different books. By the way, for the, for those who are listening to this interview, and it's like you said, they say, oh, Christians are always so concerned about, you know, this, that, and the other. They may be exaggerating some stuff. You know, we at AxForAmericaEducation.org, where the, the book, the, the textbook report is available for free for anybody to see, by the way, we spent two years on this research project analyzing 38 textbooks, history textbooks and social studies textbooks that are being taught right now in our public schools uh, in uh, 6th grade through 12. 38 books spent two years uh, investigating the report, collected data, wrote 375 footnotes, and a bibliography of nearly 275 sources. So this is not from a Christian point of view. This is a report that Jews and Hindus and many researchers that we have hired worked on it. And just to give you an idea about the teaching of, um, you know, that they are teaching in, 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 in the books about the treatment of women, uh, the treatment of Sharia, about how men and women have the same um, uh, uh, rights under Islam, they are saying that they are entitled to the same inheritance under Islam, which is not true because a woman inherits only half of that of a man. They say that uh, obviously she is treated equally as a man, which is not true, because a woman's testimony in court is worth only half of that of a man. If a woman is raised under Islam, she has to have uh, four witnesses to actually prove her point, because if it's her word against the word of an Islamic man, her word doesn't count. She has to have four witnesses. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's back up for a minute. Four, four witnesses. I mean, uh, on rarest of of occasions would a man uh, put a woman in a circumstance like that and then what gather around a half a dozen people so they can testify in court about all of this I mean how often does that ever happen 
Exactly. I mean, you know, when a man is raping a woman, he's not exactly inviting four other people to watch. So just in case she goes to court, they can testify on her side. Uh, you know, it's really unfortunate. But then again, this is why we are sounding the alarm. You know, I am all about teaching children about religion, Craig. I'm a mother of two, uh, two children uh, who went to public schools. I want my children to be taught about Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism. I want my children to have a, a well-rounded education about the world's religion. But do not indoctrinate my children into one religion or another or give my children a skewed information uh, and, uh, and almost indoctrination into one religion. Uh, that's unacceptable to me. This is not what we have. This is not what our constitution or the laws in our country allow. This is exactly why we have separation of church and state and why we do not indoctrinate children into one religion or another in the public schools. And that's why we're sounding the alarm. And I encourage parents who are listening right now to go to our website, actforamericaeducation.org, and read the report for yourself. Um, there are tips on there on what you can do as a parent, how people can get involved, uh, to start applying pressure and persuading the, the elected school board members in order to change these textbooks so we can start giving our children the truth. Let's pause on that point, because when we come back, we want to maybe drill down to the possibility that maybe what's happening here is just comments that are showing up in these textbooks based out of ignorance. Could that be it, or is there something more insidious going on? Brigitte Gabriel is with us tonight. She is an international terrorism analyst, two times New York Times best-selling author, the president of actforamerica.org. By the way, you can read a lot of what we're going to share tonight on the program at her website. Go to act, A-C-T, for America. .org. It's back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Brigitte Gabriel, our guest tonight. She is an international terrorism specialist and a two-times New York Times best-selling author. We're talking today about what has been a, a summary study, taking a look at the way Islam is being characterized in American high school and junior high school and elementary school textbooks. Uh, these include textbooks that are published by some well-known publishers, including uh, McGraw-Hill, Macmillan, uh, Houghton Mifflin, and others that seem to be changing the characterization of the way kids are taught about the, uh, the history and the, and the fundamental teachings of Islam. We mentioned about one of the uh, the top egregious examples, this notion that the Quran grants women um, equal spiritual and social equality with men that we know not only historically but to date in most of the Middle East is absolutely not the case. And I would suspect perhaps, uh, Brigitte, part of the issue here is the fact that maybe it's just ignorance. Maybe they just don't understand. They've never been there. And so things are slipping into the textbooks that are not exactly accurate. Could this be information that's simply there by accident, or is there a deeper agenda at play here? Uh, there is a deeper agenda at play here, and uh, and it's not on the part of the publisher. It is on the part of the Islam Project, which is a project that was created in the United States, funded by uh, a certain Islamic foundations overseas, uh, and set up of groups, uh, front groups for the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States, that started providing consultants to America's top textbook publishers, like Random House, Hutton Mifflin, 
McGraw-Hill, uh, Apprentice Hall, and the likes. And uh, one of the consultants, for example, is Susan Douglas, who herself is a convert to Islam, married to a Muslim man. She was one of the teachers at the notorious Saudi Academy in Virginia. And she is providing consultation to textbook publishers about how to portray Islam in the public school books. Uh, she has trained many teachers nationwide. Uh, she has edited a lot of the uh, contents of, of, of the Islam curriculum uh, for different publishers in the textbooks. So we are seeing a systematic agenda here, not on the part of the publisher, because the publishers after September 11th were just running and taking anybody who's ready to consult them about anything about Islam in the school books. So this is how this influence began happening. And it started nationwide. And it start, what started in one scale, uh, in one state, as you know, California is one of the major states, the biggest states that order books and sets basically precedents for the rest of the country, for the rest of the states to follow, like New York, like Texas, like Florida. And what we started seeing is starting as early as 1991, where we started seeing Islamic groups began implementing Islam courses in high schools, in sixth grade and seventh grade in public schools. Uh, it, actually, in my book, They Must Be Stopped, I use a particular school in California, the Excelsior School in Byron, California, where the Thomas More Law Center sued the school because they were teaching a three-week course where students like uh, Sally and Johnny had to adopt Islamic names, uh, study an Islam course for three weeks, memorize and recite verses from the Quran, uh, fast for one day to experience Ramadan if they can, and go to a mosque on a field trip. I mean, this did not start now. It started in 1991. Yeah, you know, and I remember this story. I remember this story when it came out and the fact that so many of us were absolutely dumbfounded at the notion that they would have to adopt Islamic names, uh, memorize passages from the Hadith or the Quran, uh, and uh, then take a field trip to a mosque. Can you imagine if the tables were flipped? And the teacher got up on a given day and said, okay, now, kids, today we're going to uh, be studying about the historical roots of Christianity. Uh, we're all going to pass out now Bibles. You need to uh, memorize a few verses. And then we're all going to go to church on a field trip. The ACLU and Americans United for Separation of Church and State and every other left-wing organization out there that you can imagine, Brigitte, would absolutely come unglued if that was suggested. Exactly. Uh, yet, yet we don't hear a blurb about this because nobody wants to challenge this. It's a feel-good thing. Let the kids go to a mosque on a field trip. Let them study Islam. Uh, that, that right now, uh, uh, Greg, they are teaching that this this uh, curriculum has been so morphed into public schools that the students have to pass the SOL test, and 22 questions on the SOL testing is about Islam. Of course, we've been to enter the testing, so students have to memorize and understand this. To give you an idea of, of, of also the, the brainwashing that is happening in the schools, uh, one book, for example, called Across the Centuries, which is uh, by, uh, put in by Hutton Mifflin, it's a seventh grade social studies book, and used not only in California, but nationwide in every state in the Union. Now, Across the Centuries is 558 pages long and covers the 1,500 years between the fall of the Roman Empire and the French Revolution. The text includes 55 pages devoted to Islam, 
seven pages noting the Middle Ages in Europe and six pages of Christian history. The chapter on Islam accounts for 10% of the text, while Christianity and Judaism are almost entirely absent. Now, that is a problem, because our children deserve to know the truth. They deserve to have a clear understanding of uh, the total religion and, and, and uh, basically the context as to how things happen, how things develop, and not given a preferential treatment for one religion over another. I want to pause on that point when we come back to kind of drive home uh, this issue so that listeners and parents and taxpayers, and, and understand me, this involves all of us. Even if you don't have a, a, a child in school right now, you're a taxpayer, you're helping to pay for all of this. Do you want to see a textbook having 10% of the content devoted toward Islam and yet Judaism and Christianity combined having a scant percentage of that? And then the degree to which false and erroneous and misleading information blatantly misleading information is being perpetrated on our kids. We're going to have Brigitte share some of those examples when we return. If you want to jump in, by the way, with a comment or a question, feel free to do so. Toll-free number to join us is 888-367-5329. That's 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. A brief timeout, an update on traffic. Back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back here as we continue our conversation tonight. Best-selling author from the New York Times and expert in international terrorism, Brigitte Gambriel, with us tonight. She is the president of Act for America. By the way, you can get more information on what we're discussing today on her website at actactforamerica.org. Let's uh, bring the point home here, if we can, Brigitte. Uh, walk us through, if you would, some of the more egregious examples of uh, the, the revisionist history that is being taught at taxpayer expense to children in public classrooms all across America. We began by uh, making the assertion that, uh, contrary to what they're suggesting, that the Koran grants women both spiritual and social equality with men. We know that not to be true. What else is a lie? Well, here's a very important point that's going to strike the hearts of every person listening. And it is the way they are teaching the history of 9-11 and what transpired that day. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Craig, and our listeners, that 9-11 right now is taught in public schools as, quote, um, the United States on September 11th was the target of a horrible act of terrorism or violence to further a cause. To further a cause. They do not say that the, that the terrorists were Muslims. They do not say that the terrorists were Islamists. They do not say that the terrorists were jihadists. They do not say that the terrorists were driven by an ideology. If you are a child, when, if you were a child when September 11th happened, or if you were not even born at all, like most kids in middle school right now are, and this is less than 10 years when these books were written and published after September 11th, our children are being taught that a group of terrorists attacked the United States to further a cause. For all these kids are concerned, it could be a group of Catholics from Boston or a group of Baptists from Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is the level of mistruth and, 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 and um, bordering lies that are being fed to our children right now in public schools. And the reason why we are so concerned about this is because... 
um, you know, I think of what Hitler used to say. Hitler said a very famous statement. He said, give me the children, I will change society in 10 years. And that's exactly what he did. So when we take our children today and we teach them almost 10 years after September 11th, that we really do not know who perpetrated September 11th. You know, we're not sure if they were Muslims, terrorists, you know, there were people to further a cause. These kids, when they grow up, to become the decision makers, the policy makers, the foreign policy shapers, that were people that work for our State Department or the CIA who represent America overseas. What type of decisions are they going to make in order to protect America, preserve the greatness of America, uh, if they do not know the enemy that is threatening America? How are they going to be able to defend it? Well, they're not going to because they're going to be operating solely out of a tremendous degree of ignorance. I mean, witness, for example, again, I'm quoting from some of these textbooks. In uh, Medina, Muhammad fashioned an agreement that joined his own people with the Arabs and the Jews, and these groups together accepted Muhammad as political leader, close quote. Now, that is absolutely not the case. In fact, for those that were of Jewish background that, uh, that had any tolerance for Muhammad, it was only because they were threatened otherwise. Oh, they were threatened, and he killed them. Look what he did to them. I mean, when they refused to accept him as their leader, he attacked them and drove them out of their city. Uh, he ordered the beheading of the Jews, uh, where 600 men were beheaded, and then he took their wives uh, and their daughters and their goods as booty and distributed among his men. Uh, the Jews were only allowed to stay alive under Islam because they were the people of the book and not basically killed for not converting. The only way they were able to stay alive is by being becoming dhimmi or second-class citizen and pay the jizya or the protection tax in order to buy their life. And the way they were they paid the jizya was by a, a ceremony once a month where the Jew had to kneel on his knee and hand up his goods to the mullah, where the mullah would take the goods from his hand, grab the Jew by his beard, and hit him on his chin to remind him of his humiliation. In many areas, Christians and Jews were given necklaces, receipts to wear around their neck to prove that they paid their protection tax in order to stay alive. Um, most people don't realize, Craig, that the yellow star that most people think is a Nazi invention to identify the Jews. The yellow star was an Islamic invention in the 9th century under Khalif al-Mutawakkil, the second Khalif of Iraq, who invented the yellow star to identify the Jews as they walked down the street because everyone looked exactly the same in Arabia at that time. Hitler basically borrowed what the Muslims did 1,000 years earlier and then applied it again against the Jews. Now, of course, this history is not being taught in public schools. What is taught is the mistruth and the, and, and, and the deception that you just said. Well, one of the textbooks goes as far as to suggest, and I quote here, in the early 8th century, Islam became popular in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. Close quote. Now, that is as truthful as suggesting that um, Spaniards openly embraced the arrival of Islam to Spain. <laughs> the reality of the fact is that Islam spread through uh, that region because of jihad. Armies forcibly conquered those territories. This didn't happen because of some kind of a, a cultural phenomena or an opening of, uh, of one's mindset to embrace the teachings of Islam. They were told, look, you're either going to get along or we got a sword here. What do you want? I mean, it, it is absolutely remarkable the degree to which they are engaging in this outlandish revisionist history. 
That's exactly what it is. It's a revision of history. They are rewriting history and we are allowing them. And not only allowing them, we are financing it with our tax dollars, allowing such mistruth to be taught to our children in our public schools. Our children deserve better. Our country deserves better. Our future deserves better. And by the way, I encourage those of you who are listening to us on this broadcast to go and read the textbook report on your own. Go to our website, actforamericaeducation.org. Actforamericaeducation.org. The report is over 220 pages. Uh, it has an executive summary of about 30 pages, and we encourage everyone to read it. And by the way, we mailed it to over 70,000 elected school board members nationwide, over 70,000 Act for America Education. We took it upon ourselves to make sure we inform not only the parents of this great nation and of our great children, but also every elected official in your city and state, because we want the people to get mobilized, to start talking to their uh, elected school board of education, to start uh, planning changes in what is being taught in the textbook and we need your help we need you to go to the website read the report for yourself and sign up to get our emails and action alerts so we can reach you when there is further information we need to give you about groups organizing in your community so you can make a difference in your community and i want to be clear about something brigitte we're not talking about trying to create an atmosphere of intolerance or hostility toward muslims uh, any more than than teaching the realities of what happened at Pearl Harbor on December 7th is an exercise in trying to teach people or children how to become hostile toward people of the Japanese uh, background. That isn't the case at all. We're simply saying state history, state the facts as they are. And we should not see textbooks that not only distort history, but then do so in a fashion that that makes of a greater negative light. Judaism and Christianity to an effort to try and elevate Islam over the other two. And, you know, whether there, this is some sort of a misplaced attempt to try and bring balance to some of the terrible things that have happened and, and, and acts of, of uh, unkindness down to outright, uh, uh, egregious, uh, acts perpetrated against Muslim Americans post 9-11, that kind of behavior should never be tolerated in this country. We should not be engaging in attacks against Muslims for any reason whatsoever. But that said, let's tell the truth about what happened at 9-11. Let's tell the truth about the history and the roots of Islam, just as much as we ought to be telling the truth about the history of Christianity and Judaism, and treat everyone fairly. What's happening here is outright revisionist history with an attempt to try to paint Christianity and Judaism in as negative a light as possible to the detriment of those two world religions and the foundation of which, of course, the United States was uh, was founded and create a whole new image of the history of Islam that, quite frankly, just is not the truth. You don't believe it? You want to read it for yourself? Go to ACT, A-C-T, for AmericaEducation.org. That's ACT for americaeducation.org and read the entire report 228 pages long for yourself get the inside story we appreciate Brigitte Gabriel for being with us tonight with an insight on this topic and I hope you'll uh, get forewarned and then pick up the phone and ask your own school district ask your kids bring home the textbooks that are being used in social science studies and history studies and see what they're being taught and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts 
Waleed Shobat, as you know, is a former Palestinian terrorist raised in Islam, converted to Christianity a number of years ago, frequent guest on this program, said, watch out for a slow, steady push toward the implementation of Sharia law in the United States. Well, here it is. A judge in Florida has announced that he will use Islamic law to decide a case. The case is between a Tampa Bay mosque and several men who say they were wrongfully fired as trustees of same. The St. Petersburg Times reports the men got an Islamic scholar to rule in their favor. Now they want a Florida court to uphold that ruling. The case could decide who controls up to $2.2 million received from the state after some of the land was used in a road project on behalf of the mosque. Hillsborough Circuit Judge Richard Nielsen has agreed to see if the leaders of the Islamic Education Center of Tampa correctly follow the teachings of the Quran in their decision. The case will proceed under ecclesiastical Islamic law, he wrote in a decision handed down March 3. An attorney who represents the mosque appealed Nielsen's decision with the Second District Court of Appeals last week, saying religion has no place in secular court. The mosque believes wholeheartedly in the Quran and its teachings said the attorney on Monday. They certainly follow Islamic law in connection with their spiritual endeavors, but with respect to secular endeavors, they believe Florida law should apply in the Florida courts. The judge does not agree, and this is the opening of a lot more to come. Joining me now is Bridget Gabriel, author of They Must Be Stopped, Why We Must Defeat Radical Islam, and How We Can Do It. She's also founder of actforamerica.org. Bridget, great to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you, Craig. I'm great. I'm delighted to be with you. So Sharia law now being implemented in a court in Florida. You know, we, we don't hear laws in any other state saying that, well, they're going to have to check and see if this this squares with the teachings of the Torah, if, say, there are Jewish people involved, or, or with the New Testament if they're Christians. How come all of a sudden now the U.S. court system that I understood was based on not Sharia law, biblical law, but on constitutional law, is now taking into consideration religious law to decide purely secular cases? Because there are certain groups who have been organizing in the United States, especially since 1991, as a part of the Muslim Brotherhood Project for North America, and setting up organizations that are pushing systematically for the implementation of Sharia law. And this is not the first case, Craig. Actually, the first Sharia court was established in Richardson, Texas, in the 90s prior to September 11th, prior to people in America even asking what is jihad or what is Sharia law. Um, and this last summer, uh, th this is not an isolated incident. Uh, this very similar to the New Jersey 2009 civil courts decision handed down where a woman who was being raped by her Islamic husband was denied relief from the court because the judge ruled the man's actions were in following with his religious beliefs, meaning Sharia. So we are seeing this systematically happening all across the United States. In some courts, they are calling it, you know, Islamic, uh, they're calling it Pakistani law or Egyptian law or Indonesian law. Uh, but this guy, this judge in Florida, Judge Richard uh, Nielsen came flat out and called it Islamic Sharia law. So they are feeling more emboldened and they are capitalizing on the gullibility and the ignorance of the uh, American uh, juries and some, in some cases judges who are deciding in these cases. Why is it all of a sudden th th this, what seemingly to me, Bridget, is this, this special consideration given to Muslims? 
again, it is uh, because of political correctness. It is because of the organization of the different Islamic groups who are very organized, very networked in this country who are pushing a certain agenda. In my book, They Must Be Stopped, I dedicate a special chapter titled The Muslim Brotherhood Project for North America. And I discuss a document that was presented as evidence in the Holy Land Foundation trial in 2007 by our government in the largest ever terrorism trial in the history of the United States, where 108 guilty verdicts were handed down in this trial. In this trial and in the presentation of the Muslim Brotherhood Project for North America, the government presented 29 front Islamic organizations set up by the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States to advance their agenda. So this is what we are seeing on all levels. And what is so concerning, Craig, about this case in particular, is this case will be used to set precedents for future similar cases. If this can happen in civil court, we are now on a slippery slope to it happening in criminal court. Well, the other issue here, too, I think that is amazing and, and, and startling at the same token that ought to give rise to concern for all of us. And that is, you know, we know that American constitutional law is based largely on British common law. And here we have a recent case, very recent, in which the Archbishop of Canterbury, I mean, representing Episcopalians, Anglicans, if you're in England, across all of Great Britain, said that, quote, British law should make room for Sharia law. There is a representative of the church in England saying that, you know what, we ought to get used to it. That's what they're saying over there. How soon before they're going to be saying it over here? As you and I are speaking right now on the radio, there are almost 100 Sharia courts operating in England alone, parallel to British courts. Now, if England is any preview of what's coming to the United States, now is the time for every single one of us to stop the infiltration of Sharia law into our country. And you, our listeners, can do something about it. I urge you to go to actforamerica.org. Sign our petition to the 112th Congress. It's a 10-point petition urging our elected officials to protect America and maintain the Constitution, the law of the land. What's surprising about some of this, Bridget, I, I think there's almost that, that false sense of, of security here in that I, people, if they really understand the totality of Sharia law and you take some time to read the Quran or the Hadith, you see that it's, it's not nice. I mean, this, this at the core is, it can be fundamentally brutal. In, in many aspects, uh, I mean, for example, Sharia law has been used by the Taliban and others to justify limits on women's rights, harsh punishment, including amputation and stoning. We see these cases come to light every once in a while in countries like Pakistan and elsewhere. Certainly was going on routinely in Afghanistan before military involvement over there, uh, you know, showed the Taliban the door. But what, what's disturbing about this is in spite of the abundance of evidence as to just how dangerous this can be, I find it odd that purveyors of secularism in our society today, and I'm thinking, for example, Bridget, of people like Michael Niedow, that was happy to go to all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and try to fight the issue over whether or not the phrase, in God we trust, ought to be on U.S. currency, and yet has nothing to say about implementation of harsh, extremist, religious law in America. I don't understand the apparent disconnect. 
because they don't understand it. They don't get it. They do not realize uh, how dangerous it is. Uh, first of all, they do not think it's coming over here. Uh, just as much as if you would have talked to somebody in England 20 years ago walking down the street and said to him or her, do you know that in 20 years you're going to have a completely separate legal system operating parallel to your legal system? They would have told you, you're crazy. Absolutely not. This will never happen. You are over-exaggerating it. Look what's happening in Europe today. It is no longer Europe. Europe has become Arabia. Europeans are fleeing Europe by the thousands because they cannot even live in their own communities. They have become refugees in their own communities trying to escape. So here in the United States, when I talk to people about the first Sharia court in America being implemented, instituted in Texas of all places, I mean, you cannot get any more yeehaw than the state of Texas. You know, uh, apple pie and the whole the whole thing. Yeah. And and that was in the 90s prior to September 11th. Is, but, is there a lot of a, a lot of um, uh, propaganda going on here too in order to try and kind of smooth this thing over? And I tell you the reason why I asked that. About two weeks ago, a book came in the mail, a propaganda piece, I'll call it, from CARE, the, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And it's basically, you know, information in time intended to help educate the news media on the teachings of Islam. And I, what struck me about it is that page after page in this full-color, highly professionally produced booklet that goes on for probably expensive looking booklet that goes on for probably 40 something pages what struck me first as i leafed through it bridget is i thought you know there are photographs on almost every page and typically there are smiling faces of women smiling faces of children smiling faces of young girls very few photographs of men inside of this book at all the one or two photographs that do appear are typically men in prayer you think well very stately very pious and so forth and and i'm not even really Reading the language, I thought to myself, what what an, uh, an imbalance of information photographically in the imagery that this propaganda piece is, is seeming to present here. Knowing what Islam teaches and, and how they treat their women, and then see, seeing this, anybody who picked this book and just leaves through it, well, what a wonderful religion. Look at what a r- prominent, wonderful role that women play in Islam. Uh, exactly. And then again, look at the source where it's coming from. CARE has been able to pull uh, the wool over the eyes of many in the media and politics for years, uh, claiming that they are a civil rights organization and human rights organization working to protect and present the rights of Muslims in America. Well, in the 2007 trial of the Holy Land Foundation, CARE was named unindicted co-conspirator in that trial because of their link to Hamas, uh, which is a part of the Muslim Brotherhood. CARE was the front organization for Hamas. And what most people don't realize, Craig, is a number of CARE's former employees and founders are criminals with terrorist ties. Uh, for example, Randall Ismail Royer, former CARE communications director, connected to a jihad network that trained to kill U.S. soldiers and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Uh, Ghassan Al-Ashi, who's the founding member of the CARE Texas chapter, convicted of shipping high-tech goods to Hamas in Syria. Uh, Bassam Kafagji, former CARE communications director, was charged with, uh, again, uh, with funneling money to promote terrorist activities and pled guilty to bank fraud. Uh, Mr. Habib Haddad, a care fundraiser, was deported to Lebanon because of his ties to the terrorist organization. I mean, I can name you one after another of the founders of this organization who are either convicted, deported, exiled, um, charged with, with links to terrorism, yet they have the audacity to present themselves as a moderate organization speaking on behalf of Muslims in America. And the irony is, you know who paid for all these fancy schmancy booklets that you receive? The Saudi. 
Saudis, the Arab Emirates, the Bahrain, where they raise their money. They are raising money to the tune of millions of dollars uh, trying to do propaganda here in the United States. And this is really what we are fighting. I mean, you look at an organization like ours, Act for America. We are now the largest national security grassroots organization in the United States. We have 160,000 members uh, and 530 chapters nationwide. 38 of them actually are in California. We have to beg. We have to plea for people to become patriot partners with us standing at $20 a month so we can do the work in educating the public and mobilizing the public. Yet we are competing with organizations like CARE who are funded to the tune of millions coming from the Middle East doing the dirty work brainwashing our people in our own country. Well, even as you taught us here on the program a long time ago, we see this influx of all these mosques going up all over. We watched it take place here in the San Francisco Bay Area, particularly in a post-9-11 environment. And you would initially think, gee, you know, Muslims in America, they must do pretty good. I mean, they, you know, they're raising all this on, you know, money on donations. And we're finding out, well, no, actually, it's money that's being sent here by the Saudi royal family, by the official Saudi Arabian government. Uh, that's just our, our petrol dollars making the loop back. Amazing stuff. Bridget, we're out of time. I appreciate, as always, uh, the insights that you offer. Again, point folks to your website, particularly in terms of signing that petition, to urge the United States Congress to get involved in this. And we need to be very clear in the stipulation that there is one law that stands in the United States of America, and that is constitutional law. And there's no room whatsoever to play these uh, these religious games when it comes to the implementation of Sharia law. Because if it gets implemented here, it's going to be a very sorry day for America. On the web at ACT, A-C-T, for F-O-R, America.org. ActforAmerica.org. It's founder and president, Bridget Gabriel. Bridget, thanks again for being with us. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.